You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So this morning we're going to, going to continue on in our Passion Series. Uh, Easter is around the corner, and so we are, we are making headway uh, towards that time. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 26 verses 1 through 16, and I'm titling this message today, To Die is Gain. So I have a, I have a sweet friend here at Redeemer who um, is old enough to be my father, and he has said several times to me during this, this pandemic, you know, if he catches the virus, it'll just be a, a ticket home for him. And his wife hasn't really appreciated that much, but he says it with a smile on his face all the time. So what I say that, and I share that with you, what would cause someone to say such a silly thing, right? What would cause someone to say something like that? What is on the other side of eternity that seems to be more appealing than the right here and the right now? What would draw someone into saying that? If there was no such thing as sin or brokenness, then there would be no need to really long for anything else, right? We would be home. But since the world has fallen, since it's broken, there is there's this longing and the des- this desire for the broken things to be fixed and to go somewhere where the things are fixed. And so I, I put it that way because God is in the business of restoring his entire creation. If you haven't noticed, the world is broken. It's fallen. We're seeing it all around us. God is looking to restore things. He's not looking to just obliterate everything and, and start all over. But God is taking his old creation, a creation that fell to sin, and he's taking it and he's making it new, a perfect creation. And so in order for that to happen, Jesus would have to be put to death, and he would have to be put to death so that he could defeat or overcome death on its own turf. And by overcoming, overcoming death, he is then able to, by the power of God, then make all things new in creation. And so you see, the hope of my friend, and I would say, and I hope is the hope for all of you, is not that when we die, we just leave one realm to go to another, but that Jesus will take that old, broken, dead body of ours and powerfully bring it back to perfect, glorious life. And when he brings it to life, we'll be able to then enjoy God in all his beauty and enjoy his creation for all eternity. I think that's really kind of the bigger hope. And so here's the hope of leaving this falling world behind. That there is a day when death will be put to death. There is a day where we will have no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. No more anxiety. All of those will be put to death forever. And as weird as that may sound, that is good news. And this is the good news of the cross, as Jesus will show us today. And it is this, to die is gain. To die is gain. So come along with me in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16, as we talk about to die is gain. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, Just real quick, the last thing he just got done talking about was really the story of how 
on judgment day, God will separate his people into sheep and goats, really those who are his people and those who are not his people. And so Jesus really got into talking about judgment and when the Son of Man comes and and what you can expect on that day. And so when he was done saying these things, he then said to the disciples, verse 2, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so we have this really unique saying, this, this kind of this sad moment where Jesus is saying, I'm just going to let you know during this really amazing, beautiful, festive time, I am going to die a horrific death. And so in this time, this beautiful festive time, we have the Passover. And at the same time, the Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so here's what we can just, in short, learn from what these, bring, uh, what these mean. The Passover was a time that reminded Israel of how God passed over Israel and struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians. See, when God, when God um, came to rescue Israel out of Egypt, one of the things he said to them was, if anyone, uh, if anyone would take the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorpost, over their home, when I send out the destroyer, the destroyer will pass over the homes that are covered in the blood of the lamb and will go to the homes that are not covered in the blood of the lamb and destroy the firstborn son. And so Israel, being obedient to God, took the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over their, their home so that the, the destroyer would pass over. But then we have this other unique celebration going on at the same time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a reminder of how God delivered Israel from the Egyptians. If you think of leaven when it comes to bread, it is something that is put in the dough and then spread throughout the dough so that the bread would rise. Often in the Old Testament, leaven is equated to sin. The idea that when there's sin among the body, it then spreads out among the body. And so when we have, what we have here is this whole picture of that God is passing over, punishing us for our sins. And not only that, He is removing us from our sins. And that is what we see in the cross of Christ. That the crucifixion ultimately becomes for us a certain hope, a certain hope in times of uncertainty. Jesus takes on our sin on the cross by becoming sin for us. So that means the Father then passes over punishing us for our sins. And instead, He unleashes His unrelenting, perfect, holy wrath on His Son Jesus for our sake. And then not only that, not only does the Father pass over placing punishment on us and putting it on Jesus, He removes from us then the penalty of our sin, transferring us from a dominion of darkness to a dominion of grace. So the sin is paid for, but not only that, there is then freedom in living. So that could be a hard pill for the disciples to swallow here. That Jesus, their best friend, is coming out saying, hey look, I'm about to die a horrific death. But for those of us who live on the other side of the cross and on the other side of the resurrection in history, these words are life to us. They're hope to us. Because we rejoice in the already but not yet of our salvation. Jesus has already paid for our sins. He's already sanctified us. He's already made us perfect. He's already promised us eternal life. And there is a time where that will come to perfect fulfillment when He returns. We still operate in a broken frame. We still sin. We still struggle. 
but by faith in him, we have assurance that he is going to come through. And so verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. This is nothing new for these for this crew of people. Actually, if you go back and you study the whole ministry of Jesus, from the very beginning, they have been plotting a time to actually destroy Jesus. And so the leadership here, what we, what we see is kind of intense language. They will not be satisfied until Jesus is dead. And so they operate in stealth, meaning they want to deceive by using trickery or, or lying. But here's something we need to pay attention to. Though they're being stealth in their plotting, God is not surprised by this. Nothing is hidden from God. But in all of that, God allows them to do these things in secret. He's allowing them to plot against Jesus. Have you thought about that before? God allowing his people to come against him. So the Father with full knowledge does not stop these men. Because why? Jesus has to make it. To the cross. And so why would, these, why would these leaders, these religious leaders, use deception, use trickery, use stealth? If you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is very clear that anyone who comes out as a false prophet, a false teacher, mishandling God's word or taking his name in vain, you can out him in public. And you could put him to death if you had to. But here's the problem. In the ministry of Jesus, they never could find any fault with him. Every time they tested him, every, day, every time they tried to corner him, he always silenced them. He always put them in their place with the word of God. But they also had another issue at hand. They had, this, they had the, the Passover. During Passover season, Jews from all around the world would come into Jerusalem. And so during this time, the population of Jerusalem would most likely quadruple or beyond. So to create a stir or a fuss would only cause, give cause for concern and potentially an uproar or a riot would take place. And the chief priests and the elders, really, they don't want to be seen as the bad guys during this time of year. So really, this is a tense situation. I would even say the tensions are high with our new normal of life, if you will. Things have been really weird and different the last few weeks, but they've also been tense. Work is different. Play is different. Marriage and parenting are different. Interactions with our friends are different. Just everything is different. And so with this change, there comes a height tension in our speech, in our interactions, in our thoughts, and everything. There's even tension in how we are thinking about how we're going to make ends meet. The enemy, the enemy is at work to bring us down. He is stealthy. He is slick. He is seizing the opportunity for us to be angry with one another, to be angry at God for not abruptly ending this pandemic. So what I would say to you, church, is this. Pay attention to your hearts. Pay attention to your hearts during this time. I wouldn't say trust your heart. Do not trust your heart. But turn to the one who is trustworthy. Turn to God. Turn to his word. Hear God's heart through his word in this time. Because if you don't, 
you'll start to find yourself like the religious leaders of Jerusalem at odds with God and ultimately at odds with his people. And the religious leaders chose to believe their twisted hearts over believing God's word, which is why they came after Jesus. And in doing so, they found themselves at odds with God instead of being at peace with him. So your words, your attitude, your thoughts, your behaviors, church, are they influenced by God's word? Or are they influenced by your fears and life circumstances? So be aware. And as Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians, and Pastor Doug reminded us last week in our Q&A on Wednesday, we are to stand firm on God's word. And so here's Jesus and the disciples, verse 6. They went to Bethany, which is just a couple miles outside Jerusalem, and they went into the house of Simon the leper. Verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So here's Jesus, the last week of his life, and he comes into this home at Bethany, and he comes into the home of Simon the leper. We're not 100% sure who this guy is. What we know is he's clearly a friend of Jesus. But think about this. Jesus could have gone to anybody's house he wanted to. He could have gone anywhere. But where does he go? He goes to the house of a leper. Leprosy is a contagious skin disease. If you, if you look at Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, you can see extensively how God uh, instructs Israel to treat leprosy. Bottom line, Lepers were outsiders. They could not live inside the camp of Israel. They had to be quarantined outside the camp. And though they were outside the camp, the priest's duties, they would actually go in and check in on the lepers and see how they were doing, if they were healing up. And they would determine a time where if they were considered clean again, then they could come back into the camp of Israel. And, and what else we learn is that anyone or anything that touches a leper becomes unclean. So here we have this man, by society standards, who is completely unclean. It's not like he could help it. He, he, he caught leprosy. It was a part of who he was. It, it was. it was a disease that he had. He couldn't get rid of it. But now, by societal standards, he was unclean. And so here is Jesus, reclining at the table, eating dinner with this man next to a leper, Jesus was the guest in this man's house. This man invited Jesus in, was being hospitable towards Jesus, and Jesus accepted the invitation to come in. So some of us right now, because of what's going on around us, we might be thinking, man, is, is Jesus a fool? Is he a fool for sitting down with a contagious leper? I mean, what if he catches the disease? I mean, or what if he spreads it to someone else? Jesus sitting among a man who is deemed an outsider, who is filthy, who is unclean. In the Old Testament, if the priest or a lamb touched a leper, they would not be fit for worship. They would not be fit for sacrifice. And yet here is the picture of Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, the great high priest, the one who would atone for our sins and the one who would bring us to the Father. He has the ability to be around this leper and remain this perfect lamb and priest to atone for our sins. So the gospel is about Jesus not changing the skin condition or changing diseases, but taking our leprous hearts and making them clean. 
The irony of the story is that those who are religiously or outwardly pure and clean, that is the elders and the chief priests, they are the ones who are in the most need of cleansing. And Simon, who is outwardly a leper, seems to have a pure and clean heart that is after the Lord. And so Simon really appears to be the sheep from what Jesus spoke about in the previous chapter, in chapter 25, verse 35. Let me read that. For, one, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I have this feeling on the day of judgment, Simon will be in the group of sheep and not in the group of goats. So I want to share with you kind of a reality about this time of lockdown in our city. I've noticed that there is not a whole lot the poor or the homeless can do during this time. For the, for the homeless, there's really no place to quarantine. For the poor, there's limited access to hygiene products, limited access to food. There are many of us who can go and we can stand in a, in a wraparound line at Sam's Club and fill our carts to the brim. We can throw it into our car. We can run it home, put it in our fridge, fill our deep freezes, uh, freezers and our pantries. But there's a large portion of our community that doesn't have the ability to do so. And, and look, I'm telling you this not to try to make anyone feel bad. I'm not trying to do that at all. But what I want us to do is look up when we drive. Look up. Be aware of what many don't have. And see if we can be a solution to the problem in our community. Jesus sat with a contagious disease man because under the disease was an image bearer of God. An image bearer who is ultimately in need of the saving grace of Jesus. And so hear me clearly. I'm not calling you to put you, your family, or even those you wish to serve in jeopardy of getting sick. But I want you to consider how many of the poor in our community are being looked at as nothing more than just the carriers of a disease. And really, they're quickly avoided or quickly judged. And so if you were poor, what would you be thinking during this time? What would you be feeling? Would you be anxious? And if so, what would you be anxious about? And so... I want us to see our community not in judgment, but as Jesus saw the poor community. I want us to have compassion. And then I want us to discover ways that we can be among them and provide real help that matters, real help that communicates to them that they are valuable image bearers of God. And I'll even say this, even a simple hello can go a long way to a poor community. So let's be a people that sees one another as people, not as potential hazards to our health, but let us consider laying our lives down for the sake of helping lifting others up. So, look, Jesus doesn't just associate with societies unclean. He also associates with those who are deemed second class. And here in this story, we see an unnamed woman. A commentator says, the presence of the unnamed woman was most unusual. Jewish women did not ordinarily attend banquets with men except in the capacity of servants. So here was this woman, not in the capacity of servant, but in the capacity of friend, hanging out, eating, dining with Jesus, and then anointing him with her uh, alabaster flat. And so she anoints him with pure ointment, it says. 
That means this ointment is valuable. It's pure. It's made with trustworthy material. And look, the, the author of Matthew doesn't clue us in, the author, I guess, who is Matthew, uh, doesn't clue us in onto the woman's motivation for doing this. It just says that she did. But Jesus would later give us reason. So here we have a plot to murder, hardened hearts, leprosy. We have all of these elements so far in the story. But it is then the faithful act of this unnamed woman that takes center stage. Verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. When they saw the woman anoint Jesus with the, uh, with the oil, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Like, this is not the first time the disciples have been indignant. If you were to flip over to Mark chapter 10, you see the disciples were indignant towards James and John when they were asking Jesus, hey, is it cool if when we get to heaven we can sit on your right side and on your left side? We just want to make sure we can be as close to you as possible. That really upset the other disciples. In that moment, there was a teachable moment for Jesus. You're misunderstanding the kingdom. You're misunderstanding heaven. You're misunderstanding what's going to happen. And so here again, we see the anger or the indignation of the disciples misleading them to understanding what's really happening before them. They're missing the point. And so Mark's gospel also tells us that when the disciples asked this question, why this waste, they were scolding her. They were really angry towards her. And they were angry because what she was doing was she was pouring a very expensive bottle of ointment out onto Jesus. In fact, Mark tells us that it was 300 denarii, meaning a year's worth of wages that she was pouring out onto Jesus. So you might think, okay, why are these guys so upset? There's a, there's a few possible thoughts here. One is a traditional thought, which a commentator says, it was customary on the evening of the Passover to remember the poor with gifts. So perhaps during this time of celebration, they saw this as opportunity to go serve the poor. It's also possible when we read the other Gospels that we see Judas was actually wanting the money for himself. He was, he was a thief and he was the money holder. It's also possible that the woman thought of Jesus as the one who was poor and homeless, the one whom she would serve with this ointment. So whatever the understanding, the disciples were so fixated on it that they saw the woman's giving up what she had for Jesus as a complete waste. So Jesus steps in, he defends the woman, but he does so really in an unexpected way. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus has a unique defense here. The woman is preparing Jesus to die. So the beauty of the woman's faithfulness to pour oil on Jesus, though she may not have had any idea at the moment, comes to light here when Jesus says the act was a part of processing of a, of a process of preparing him for burial. The second thing he, he makes notice is that, or, or to the disciples, is that, look, make much of your time with me while you have it, because I'm going to be gone. 
Jesus' words about the poor remind us of Deuteronomy 15.11. So when Jesus says, hey, look, I'm leaving. You'll always have the poor with you. It can make us think, man, is, is he just disregarding the poor? Does he have, not have a heart? No, he, he's actually echoing what we see throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 15.11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, God tells Israel. And he tells them that after previously telling them to serve the poor, to give to the needy. So God is telling Israel, serve the poor, but understand there will always be poor. And so the same point is made. Jesus served the poor in his entire ministry. I mean, he was poor, essentially. He was homeless, if you will. But he was not so unwise to think that the value of that one bottle would somehow end the poverty crisis. So what is the goal of Jesus if not to help in poverty and, and really just the problems in the world at hand. I hope as a pastor in a poor community that we do see poverty turn a corner here. But I think wisdom of God's word should really drive us here. We need to serve the poor, but we must also be careful to see that there will always be the poor. There's a much bigger problem to the human condition than any pocketbook can really afford. As humans, we we tend to look to ourselves to solve the world's problems instead of asking more obvious questions like, why is there always poverty? Asking a question like that helps kind of start a train of thought that would eventually lead us to more pressing questions like, why is the world so broken? And, And when we get to that question, we start to get to the root problem. And when we get to a root problem, then we start to find a root solution. And so we have to be careful in our community, in our culture, in our climate, not to turn into social superheroes and really run ourselves into the ground, into the dirt, and just burn out. We, all, we need to be quick to look to the one who provides a real, eternal solution to the problems of the world. Sin is an ever-present problem. Poverty is an ever-present problem. A fallen and broken world by sin is what makes poverty an ever-generational problem. So you want to cure poverty? Then cure the brokenness of the world. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, you will not always have me. Because the beauty of the woman's act of anointing is preparing the disciples and us all to behold Jesus' work to overcome the brokenness of the world by overcoming death. Verse 12, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Notice what Jesus says. Where the gospel is proclaimed, this will be told of her. The gospel is not separate from Jesus' death. It's not. To speak the gospel is to also speak of Jesus preparing to die for the sins of the world. To avoid the death of Jesus is really to avoid part of the gospel. You cannot have victory over sin. You cannot have victory over death, victory over Satan, if Jesus does not first die. And then how does Jesus overcome death? By dying a real death like all of us. And then by the power of God coming back to life in a perfectly glorified body. And by Jesus coming back to life, death loses. All things against God are rendered powerless. 
And so this woman's act of anointing Jesus tells us a story, a bigger story, a story she didn't even realize it was telling. It is this, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is going to follow through on his plan to save sinners. The Messiah is going to die. The Messiah wants all eyes on him. So let me ask you, what are you offering the world during this time? We all want to be a part of the solution, don't we? We all want to be a big, a big help. We want to contribute. We want to serve. We want to be a helping hand. But we all come to a point where what we have to offer is really not going to amount to much. And most of what we have to offer has an expiration date. And honestly, many of us just have to stay away. So we're all limited in our money, we're limited in our time, our energy, our resources, our social distancing. And even if we could all just give 100% of our year's wages away for the sake of the city, it wouldn't be enough to handle all the anxiety, the pain of loss, the worry, the movement of a virus, the ongoing problem of domestic violence, drug abuse, child abuse, murder, sickness, death. Like Jesus, we we have to be real with the limitations of of human intervention and get honest with what matters most, what will actually change things. Are we caught up in other matters, or are we all eyes on Him? It seems like the Lord has allowed this virus to happen, in one sense, to put all of our attention to Him. You cannot control the virus. You cannot control the amount of food you have access to. You cannot control your employer to pay you. You cannot control the tension in the air. You cannot control your kids to stop asking you questions all day long. Parents, I know you feel that every day. Bottom line is, you and I, we cannot control our lives right now. We can't control it. And so I'm afraid it's taken this sort of virus for that reality to come home. And to hit us hard. I think it'll take months for our society to get back to normal. And even then, many may never even get back to normal again. So where are you looking for answers? To whom are you going to for help? But then ask yourself, where are your neighbors looking for answers? And to whom are your neighbors going for help? This may be one of the only times in your life where Facebook, your Facebook status, is your social status in real life. You you have a captive audience with dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands scrolling uh, past your name in their feed. So what is it that you're going to give them? What are you going to feed them? Because this may be the only time in your life you actually have any influence by what you say online. So I would say steward the opportunity well and point them to give their attention to the Savior. You know, if you, if you recall at the, at the beginning of this passage, we, we saw how the leaders began to work stealthily to kill Jesus. And while they were plotting and planning in secret, Jesus was sitting with the leper and the woman was anointing him with oil. And while they were plotting, trying to figure things out, Jesus told his disciples that he was preparing to die. And it would not be until Judas Iscariot shows up to the leaders that they finally come up with a real plan to kill Jesus. And so here's the point. Jesus had this plan figured out long before these leaders had a chance to even talk about it. 
Jesus has been preparing for this moment since before the foundation of the world. He was ready to lay down his life and die. And so it's remarkable to me that Jesus would willingly plan to come to earth to die for our sins before creation even existed. Jesus is no victim here. He is a lamb laying his life down for his sheep. And that is good news. 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they, they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So what we can ascertain from the Gospels is that Judas was both a thief and he was influenced by Satan. The Bible speaks of Satan as tempting us with things that entice our flesh. Judas was a thief. Satan enticed Judas by tempting him with opportunity for more money. The craving of his flesh was so strong that he, he loved money more than he loved Jesus. And as difficult as that is to see, while Judas willingly chose to betray Jesus, it was exactly what God would allow to happen so that Jesus could be put to death. This is a real trying time in our culture these last several weeks. People are becoming more desperate and they're willing to do just about anything. And and honestly, my street alone was so full of problems in the last two days, it could have been a couple episodes worth of live PD. So we have to be careful in this season. Tensions are high, and we don't get what we want. We, we panic, and we, we turn to our enticements. We become entitled. It's possible Judas wanted the opportunity to take the money made off the ointment for himself. It's possible. Speculation. And so let's say that was his prerogative. When he saw Jesus rob him of that opportunity... He then found another opportunity to make money, even if it cost him giving up a close friend. So look, church, our sinful nature has a tendency to do weird things like that. So think about this season. We look at problems and we might say, hey, God, why did you rob me of that opportunity? I had job security. I had a consistent paycheck. I had good health. You are taking from me what I think is good. And if we're not careful... We can look at God's work around us and call it robbery. And then out of spite, we throw God under the bus so we can try to get ahead. When stuff doesn't go our way, we tend to look at God and say, God, you're a fool for allowing this virus to happen. You're a fool for taking something away from me that I wanted. God, you are mean. You are not a just God at all. We then take matters into our own hands. We become our own God. And with the help of our good old buddy, the tempter, we feed the enticement of our flesh. God, if you're not going to give me what I want, then I will find another way on my terms. So what we need to understand is this. God's ways are not our ways. God is infinitely wise. And he is just. Judas was a fool, an absolute fool. He betrayed the Lord. The Lord used Judas's foolishness for the good of saving his people. So who are you today? Are you the faithful woman? Or are you the foolish betraying Judas? The woman gave up everything for the sake of Jesus, whereas Judas was willing to give up Jesus for the sake of everything. And in the end, the woman became spiritually rich and Judas 
became spiritually broke. So I would call you to lay your fears and anxieties down and put your hope in Jesus. You will, you will have all that you need by putting faith in Him alone. Well, what about my physical needs? Well, the Scripture tells us that the Father promises His children that He will feed them, that He will clothe them. It may not be done in the way that we like or the way that we want, but He does it nonetheless. So do not fear. The Father will take care of you. Trust in Him. Don't put your hope in the world. Do not put your hope in the job that you may or may not have. Do not put your hope in whether or not you may catch this virus. If you do, you will be full of anxiety, full of worry, uncertainty. And I'll say this. Jesus wasn't uncertain as he approached his death. Today's story is not about an anxious, scared, tired, overwhelmed, concerned Jesus who is second-guessing everything in life. Today's story is about a calm, confident and yet courageous Jesus who found certainty in a gospel that included his own death. And he did it with joy. And so as you go about your week, I would ask that you, you put these profound and comforting truths at the forefront of your mind. That the Father has passed over your sins and he has placed them on Jesus. That Jesus has willingly bore the punishment for your sins on the cross. And that Jesus died. And when he died, he took our sins with him to the grave. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he brought us to life with him. So by faith, we have been buried with Christ in his death. And in his resurrection, we have been raised to life with him. And just like my good friend, who is not afraid to die, we too are to be grounded in this certainty to live as Christ, to die as gain.